This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week we have a special announcement, and we're going to share the news with you after the episode. Stay tuned. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. There have been many cases where cops disparage uh, these groups and these individuals. They actually have been called uh, the dough nuts, as in, you know, Jane and John Doe. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Malone. When Sarah Koenig of This American Life created Serial, the word podcast became a new household word. Koenig shared her obsession over a murder case with millions of people. For most, Serial was passive entertainment. But some listeners took their interest a bit farther, maybe too far. Fans posted on the popular website Reddit. There were threads devoted to helping Koenig solve the crime. They searched databases for clues and connected with people involved in the crime. A few went too far. At least one serial listener cased the home of key witness and alternative suspect, Jay Wilds. Wilds filed a restraining order. Serial fans aren't the only ones using the Internet to solve crimes. There's an army of amateur sleuths all over the country trying to crack cold cases. They're often armed with nothing more than laptops and what's available through public information. Welcome to the future of crowdsourced law enforcement. Reporter Britt Hansen looks at the effect it's had on real-world investigations. It looked like Douglas DeBruin would get away with murder. In 2001, police arrested him for killing Gregory May, but they didn't have a body. And without a body, it was impossible to know if May had actually been murdered. Lucky for police, Ellen Leach was on the case. They had found a skull in a bucket of cement at a truck stop in Kearney, Missouri. That's all they had was the skull. This happens all the time. Body parts just turn up. But no one knows who they are or what happened. A facial reconstruction artist made a reconstruction of what the man's face might have looked like and put it on the internet. Then Leach began to search. And it's, it's a big puzzle is what it is. She has two computer monitors. One shows human remains and the other pictures of missing persons. I went from site to site to site and I found Gregory May's picture. And it looks so much like the skull in Kearney, Missouri. Just the, the total facial features, the way the eye sockets were on him were just perfect. Leach made the match. It was the evidence police needed to get a conviction. But the police didn't respond to her attempts to get in touch. They didn't take her seriously. I work at Hobby Lobby. I run the seasonal department. It takes all my time off of work just to do this. (laughs) That's right. Ellen Leach is an amateur, but she's very good at her hobby. She's made eight matches and is a superstar among the community of online sleuths. Amateur sleuthing has changed over the years. Deborah Halber wrote a book on this phenomenon called The Skeleton Crew. She follows one early sleuther trying to crack a cold case, 
All he could do was drive to newspaper archives around Kentucky, call the medical examiner, call the local police. But he persisted, and with the advent of the internet, there were these uh, early bulletin boards. A woman had posted a notice saying, uh, looking for my long-lost sister, last seen in Lexington, Kentucky in 1968. And he suddenly just knew that that must be Tent Girl. Now there are thousands of online sleuths. They gather on sites like the Doe Network and NamUs, created by the Department of Justice. This database is open to the public. It's the first one of its kind where family members can actually go in and update case files and they can put in DNA samples or dental records. And nothing like this ever existed before. But this is still new, and some law enforcement keep amateurs at arm's length. There have been many cases where the cops disparage uh, these groups and these individuals. They actually have been called uh, the Doe Nuts, as in, you know, Jane and John Doe. Leach knows this well. After she figured out the skull likely belonged to Gregory May, she tried contacting law enforcement. It took almost a month, but the police finally listened to her tip. Four days before his trial, they matched the dentals. He might have not gotten first-degree murder had it not been for that match. So how did Leach go from stocking shelves to forensic investigator? Well, I had cousins that went missing back in the 90s. Leach's cousin is a woman named Susan Smith. In 1994, Smith's children disappeared. She publicly pleaded with their kidnapper. It was all over the TV. I would like to say to whoever has my children that they please, I mean, please bring them home. Leach watched in horror. She was a thousand miles away and felt helpless. So she got online. But this time, she came up short. The kids were found dead, killed by their own mother. But Leach never stopped searching for the missing. Some families could get closure, and she wanted to help. She worked cases for four years before making her first match. Because of her, Gregory May's murderer went to prison. It made me feel good inside. It it made me feel good that I could actually help somebody. And the family, they called me, they mailed me. I still get Christmas cards from them. Leach is a certain kind of amateur sleuth. She works alone on cold cases. But there's another type, too, and they tend to work as a crowd, solving crimes in real time. Sometimes they even deal out their own kind of internet justice. And this is a totally different animal. Take the online crowd that gathered on Reddit after the Boston Marathon bombing. While the bombers used the anonymity of the crowd to commit murder, Redditors used it to find them. So this was posted two years ago. That's longtime Reddit user Kale Oglesby. He was on Reddit as soon as he heard about the bombing, and thousands of people joined him. Community, update 226 at 1124, picture of black duffel bag and pressure cooker found at blast site from FBI bulletin. Kale watched it all unfold, but he didn't participate. As he watched, Redditors started naming names, drawing conclusions based on hours of listening to police scanners and searching pixelated images. The bombers were still at large, and there was a palpable sense that they could strike again. On the way to 
Boston and 30,000 behind them. One woman named Judy Tripathi was experiencing two tragedies that day. Her 22-year-old son, Sunil, had recently gone missing. She was in the midst of running an online campaign to find him. Her other two children were watching the marathon near the finish line. You know, we were 30-some days into that when Sangeeta and Ravi took an afternoon off to go to the Boston Marathon. They were there near the finish line when the bombing happened. Really horrible, horrible day for everyone. The two oldest kids were okay, but at the time, Judy had no idea where her youngest was. Sunil had been suffering from depression. A month earlier, on the night of March 16, 2013, he disappeared. Sunil was always very special. He was very sensitive, very quiet, very gentle, very philosophical. By April 18th, the FBI released images of the bombers and asked the public to call in tips. But that's not how it went down on Reddit. The crowd put any and all information online for everyone to see. And then two days later, the night of the 18th, was when the whole internet thing exploded where they, you know, identified or misidentified Sunil as suspect number two. User Back 711 wrote, Boston PD confirms on scanner that Tripathi is bomber number two. And Starfoxer wrote, To all the idiots who said they should stop bringing up this poor kid, blah, blah, Reddit was right. People found the Facebook page where Sunil's family was organizing their own crowdsourcing campaign. Within the next couple of hours, the posts became so numerous and so nasty that we had probably five or six computers in the room trying to delete the posts. And it was tough. The volume just started to increase. We did not sleep that night, but our phones were vibrating all night long. And we had, I don't even know how many voicemails from print journalists and TV journalists and radio asking to talk to us about Sunil. And my biggest worry all night long was, where was Sunil? And how could this impact him? And to this day, that haunts me. Tripathi finally got reprieved the next morning when the FBI released the names of the true suspects. Sunil was not one of them. Accused of murder, he became a victim of the worst kind of internet trolling. It was emotionally devastating. It was like unbelievable because no one was prepared for anything and it was very personal. Four and a half days later, Sunil's body was found. He died the very same day he disappeared. We didn't know at the time, but that night he took his life in Providence River. Tripathi felt wronged. It was as if a newspaper had printed a headline naming her son a terrorist. But libel laws are aimed at traditional media. Newspapers, radio, television. 
because the claims about Sunil were made online, there was no legal recourse. There are very few laws that directly address online defamation. The most recent act was established back in 1996, but mostly to address pornography, not what happened to Sunil. It's up to online communities to police themselves, and the Doe Network has it figured out. Members must submit their names, addresses, even criminal history. Everyone commits to strict protocols. No contacting family members or interfering with police. Break the rules, and you get kicked out. But Reddit is another story. I, I don't know who or, or what I can point a finger at, except that we as a society need to really look at what happened and learn a lesson right now so that we don't put another family through anything like that. Reddit general manager Eric Martin personally apologized to Judy Tripathi and said they would work to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Reddit now has stricter guidelines on respect, privacy, and safety. But the site has a million and a half users and is moderated by volunteers. Even with a clear code of conduct, staying on top of user behavior is nearly impossible. There's a real advantage to encouraging online sleuths. There's more people looking at cold cases than ever before. Criminals get caught. Families get closure. But law enforcement follows strict protocols for a reason. There's rules of evidence, probable cause, juries. The internet has none of that. And, as the case of Sunil Tripathi proves, there's a fine line between a crowdsourced detective unit and a lynch mob. For Life of the Law, I'm Britt Hansen. And I'm Nancy Mullane. At Life of the Law, we do more than produce this podcast. We also host storytelling shows called Live Law. From New York to Des Moines to Nashville to San Francisco, we gather in theaters and coffee shops and once even a bowling alley to hear people tell stories about how the law really works in their lives. Starting next week, we're bringing those stories to you in a new podcast series called Live Law. The Live Law podcast is different from this podcast, which isn't going anywhere. Think of it as a sister podcast, and you'll need to subscribe separately to Live Law. But this week, we want to share with you what the Live Law podcast is all about. So here it is, the first episode of Live Law. You've just heard about amateur investigators taking the quest for justice into their own hands. The guy you're about to hear from, he did just that. Calvin Duncan told this story in Albuquerque. The theme of our show was one moment. And I'll tell you this much. If you're accused of a crime, this is the man you want on your team. Here's Calvin. What law has always meant to me is service, serving other people in situations that, that's unbelievable. Our criminal justice system is, woo, it's, it's not just broke, it's terrible. So when I got arrested in um, 1982 for a crime that I didn't, com didn't commit, they put me on a tier called B1. And when I got on that tier, everybody was telling me I was going to get the death penalty without, me, without even knowing the facts of my case. They said, boy, you're going to get executed. I said, but you don't even know what I'm in prison for. And so I started asking around. I said, what can I do to help myself? My lawyers wasn't coming to see me, and it looked like everybody on the tier was condemning me because they had already been condemned themselves. 
Some of them had the death penalty. Some had already been sentenced to life. And a lot of them was in prison for things that they didn't do. So I asked a guy named Joe Washington. I said, how can I help myself? And he said, boy, in order to, in order to avoid being executed, you're going to have to learn the law. So I said, well, how can I learn the law? He said, well, you get your law book. Well, we didn't have any law books at the time. And I, I had no clue. I had a ninth grade education. And so I started asking around, said, man, who, who could teach me law? And it's like, man, nobody. But they had guys that was on the tier that had a, had a lot of involvement, involvement with law. And they also had guys on the tier that, and I noticed that a lot of them was mitch, mitch, uh, missing. They had hockey look, looks. They, they was missing their two front teeth. <laughs> and all of them had been to Angola. And I said, damn, something is wrong here. <laughs> but the institution would not provide dentures. So guys told me, well, what can be done for these guys if you could file a civil suit? And so I drafted up a civil suit for a friend of mine, and I argued that he has an Eighth Amendment right to receive dentures because when he's chewing his food, he cannot probably digest it. And everybody said, that's stupid, man. You're not gonna, that's not going to work. But it did work. <laughs> and so my journey started, then I, be, I, I knew instantly I was a lawyer. But I still didn't have my law book. <laughs> and so I filed a civil suit myself because they had placed me in a dungeon without due process. Without, they told me I had a right to present a defense at a disciplinary board, and I didn't get that. So while in the dungeon, I filed my, 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 my individual 1983. And um, they put me back on a chair, and I asked Joe Walsh, and I said, oh, man, what you think is going to happen when I go to court? He said, the first thing they're going to do is impeach you. When peach meant to us was that they wasn't going to allow me to testify. So I said, what can I do, Joe, to stop them from impeaching me and not allow me to testify? He said, well, look, you could file this motion. <laughs> this motion will stop them from asking you these questions that would impeach your credibility. I said, okay. So I draft up the motion. And I went to court. I said, Your Honor, I, 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 I mailed the motion to the court. And you hadn't ruled on him. And she said, what motion is, are you referring to, Mr. Duncan? I said, well, you have it. And, but before I left the tear, I asked Joe, what is the name of this motion? I, and he told me. And so I went to court. I said, Your Honor, I filed a motion of Lyme. And the and and judge said, Lyme? And I said, yeah, I filed a motion of Lyme. And you have not ruled on my motion. So the clerk said, can I see the motion? I, I handed her the motion, and she said, Your Honor, that's a motion of limited. I said, that's the motion. <laughs> I said, that's the motion that I'm referring to. And she said, denied. <laughs> so it's obvious you, you all know the answer, uh, what happened next. I lost my civil suit. And then I start saying, look, I got it. I say, Joe, you told me that motion was a motion of lying. Why you did that? He said, I just wanted to see what you was going to do. 
I, I just want to see if you believe what I told you. <laughs> but I still didn't have my law book. And I still was facing a capital offense, and everybody was telling me that I was going to be executed. So I was trying to figure out how can I help myself. So I started preparing another motion. This time I sent this motion to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and I said, my lawyer's not coming to see me, and I, there's no access to any legal material. And I titled that motion a motion for a law book. <laughs> and everybody told me that is a stupid motion. I sent it to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said you sent it to the wrong court. They sent it to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit said you should have went to the trial court. I said, well, how can I get anything from my trial judge that has had six jury trials? Don't believe nothing that anybody tell him in the criminal district court other than the DAs. But he, they referred the case to the um, trial court, and I went to court, and I got my 1982 criminal code. <laughs> now I am a lawyer. And that started my career in helping other people get access to the court. I was ultimately um, found guilty. The jury rejected the death penalty, and I was sent to Angola. While in Angola, I became an inmate lawyer, 23 years. 19 of those years was working for the guys on death row. But one of the things that, we, I, I, that hindered me from doing a good job, not that I didn't have education. I didn't think I needed one. Because <laughs> I could continue to file them stupid motions. And I started helping people. And one time I was researching this case about insufficiency of evidence, and um, I was also working the mental health unit. And I came across this guy that I, first before I met him, I had read about his case, researching for another guy. And while I was making my rounds, this guy, for some reason, he was woke that day. His name is Carlos Poré. And he introduced, I said, well, what is your name? He said, I'm Carlos. I said, you Carlos Poré? He said, yeah. I said, man, you shouldn't be here. He said, man, I killed the person and I shot nine other people. <laughs> I said, but you still should not be here with us. And I said, can I work on your case? He said, there's nothing that you could do for me. I said, I got your appeal decision. I said, do you have your transcript? No. I said, but I got your appeal decision. Let me work on your case. And so with his appeal decision, I, I submitted a petition to the, um, to the trial court, and I said the state Supreme Court got it wrong. This guy should not have been found guilty. He should have been found guilty by reason of, of insanity. And the Fourth Circuit and the Supreme Court was wrong. And the trial judge said, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but I can't reverse the um, higher court. But ultimately, we went into the federal court, and the federal court agreed. And Carlos, was, um, he won his habeas corpus relief application. And he was sent to a mental institution where he's supposed to be, other than being in Angola for 18 years. But I still had a problem because I still couldn't get access to people records. And I had to litigate Carlos petition um, without his records. So a good friend of mine that was in, that's in CCR and still is in CCR named Albert Woodfox. I said, man, what, am I, what, what can I do to help these guys and I don't have their records? And he started thinking, Albert, he thinks a lot. <laughs> and Albert said, man, look, you know what I'm going to do? Let's start an organization on the street. I said, well, we ain't on the street. <laughs> he said, I got somebody going to start our organization called Retrieval of Documents. <laughs> and he did. 
And then we got a lot, lot of access to a lot of other people's documents. And so then a tragedy happened. By that time, we was getting a lot of police reports and district attorney files and Louisiana Supreme Court, the, the DA's office realized, damn, we made a big mistake by giving them access to records. <laughs> and so in 1995, they passed a law that's declared all of us in prison, like Alvin and the rest of us, nine persons for the purpose of obtaining public records. So that left us all in the dark. Then I met a, um, a, um, a law student named Emily Bolton, and I explained to her, I said, we, we, we write all over the United States looking for help for those of us that's innocent, and we're not getting good response. When you graduate from Tulane University, would you start the Innocent Project? And she said, yes, I will. And she graduated, and she applied for a Sorrow Justice Fellowship Award, and she was granted that award to start the Innocent Project. But we were still considered nine persons. But they accepted my case and investigated my case. And as a result of the um, Open Society Institute, Sorrow's Justice Fellowship, I was a recipient for, um, from the hard work of Vincent Project. And in, in uh, January 7, 2011, I was released. But, But before I was released, I had another friend that was on death row. He had five life sentences and, and three death penalty. The five life sentence cases put him on death row, but one thing we couldn't get, I still couldn't get access, was that of his records. So before I left prison, the issue was, would I, this, his name is um, um, Juan Smith. He said, man, you're going to leave me here. I said, I'm going to leave you in good shape. Believe that. <laughs> So without his records, I wrote to the DA's office. The DA's office said, well, if you had $45, we'd give you your DA file. But Wine couldn't earn any incentive, incentive wages, and I definitely didn't have um, $45. But before I left, I filed a petition, and I, I characterized it as a Brady, a, a bare Brady claim. I said, I don't have his files, but I know it's something in them files the DA's office is holding. <laughs> so... He was getting close to being executed, and his lawyer started investigating the five life sentences. And they found all kinds of information that showed that Juan is possible and innocent for the five life sentences that put him on death row. And his case went to the United States Supreme Court, and the 8-1 decision he won, based upon that Bear Brady claim that was a stupid motion. So as you can see, I'm used to filing stupid motions. So when I got out, I said, man, how can I help these guys that I left behind? And so I, got, I was hired part-time at the Capitol Appeals Project. And at the same time, I was, I was trying to figure out how can I get them the DA files. Because I wasn't a person to get my own files. Because the law said I wasn't a person. But now I'm free. And I am a person. So... I discovered that I could go to the Fifth Circuit, print cases, and mail them. And then some, one of the law students that, at the, uh, at, that was interned um, at the Capital Appeals Project said, Calvin, you, you know anything about emailing? <laughs> I said, no, teach me how to email. <laughs> so I, I start emailing 
updated cases to the director of the legal program at Angola and say, look, provide these updated cases to the inmate lawyers so they could better prepare pleadings. And that went on for a while. And then at the same time, me working as a paralegal and me running errands for the guys in prison, I say, well, the lady that I work for, she, I, th I think she know what I'm doing. <laughs> so we had to figure out how can I continue to help the guys get access to um, records and also do my job. And then I applied, as Emily Bolton did, for Sorrow's Justice Fellowship to continue my work. And I was granted that fellowship. I still, as fate had have it, I was. And that, gave, and that has given me 18 months to work with all the inmate lawyers, make sure that they prepare proper pleadings, that they don't have to rely on updated or uh, outdated law, and to give me the best privilege that I've ever had after I got released. I was able to walk in the district attorney's office <laughs> with, a, with my scan in hand, because I, I don't have no money to pay for the documents. So I bring this scanner. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's really a printer. That's what it is, a printer, but I call it a scanner. And so I walked in the DA's office with my scanner. The building, this office that I've always wanted to be in, because they got all that information to, to exonerate people, and they won't share it with me or uh, with everybody else. So with my scanner, I walked to the, again, there, I said, I'm here, um, Calvin Duncan, and all of them know me, they say, because they knew my case. And I said, I, I come here to scan, scan some records. And so they brought me to the third floor, and I plugged up my scanner, and I started scanning <laughs> records. And so, while I was scanning the records, I said, you know something, it feel good to be a person. <laughs> it, just, it actually did. And so now when I go to the DA office, all I'm looking, he said, that's that spy. He's spying on us. <laughs> and I say, oh, that's a service. This, the, the serve others mean, that's what the law means to me, to be able to serve others. And I do it with so much enthusiasm and I love serving people. I've always done that. And I admire all the lawyers in here that actually do it. But one thing I want you all to remember, how, much, how privileged you all are to have that access to updated legal material. And that the guys on the inside, what they refer as jailhouse lawyers, are actually doing the best that they could with the resource that they have. And they continue to do what I did, which is our stupid motions. That was Calvin Duncan sharing his story at our Live Law event in Albuquerque. Live Law is a production of Life of the Law and is produced by Mary Adkins and Jonathan Hirsch. Our Live Law theme was composed by Yasha Hoffman. Stay tuned next week when we'll launch our new Live Law podcast series with our second storyteller, Tony Tyler. We walked a couple of streets up to the main street of that area, and we noticed something that I had never seen before and probably never will see again. There was a kiki of sorts happening. There was a large group of probably 25 or 30 drag queens of color in the street having the biggest street fight you've ever seen in your life. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Britt Hansen and edited by Life of the Law's managing editor, Michael May. 
Jonathan Hirsch created the sound design with music by Todd McDonald. Caitlin Prest is our senior producer. Howard Gelman at KQED Studios in San Francisco was our engineer. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the infinite guest network of podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the National Science Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, and by you. This is Life of the Law. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God.